This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. There's a saying, where you lay your head is home, but sometimes that's difficult to find. A new term for it is couch surfing, but Libby Angel has many other terms for it in her book, Where I Slept. Welcome, Libby. Hi, Jan. Thanks for having me. Back again, yes. The book is set in 1990s and our narrator doesn't get a name, but we do learn a lot about her. Her first, na- her first home is in Tidy Town. What has she decided to finish doing there? What does she finish doing? Studying? Quits uni. <laughs> Quits the institution. She, as she quote, I want to live in the real world. Her first independent home is The Last Stand with her friend Lolly. Introduction to the places and people she sees is also in this book and it's the old man that uh, she describes who perhaps lives life differently. How? <laughs> well, he's he kind of represents old money gone to seed, I think, and he has property and... Assets, but he's quite derelict. Yeah, his his office is full of mannequins. Yes, and and he does like a drink, and his far his his son always wants him to sell his Darrow old boarding house. But no, he's got quite a lot. His son organises a nurse for him. Yeah, that's right. And he he's so stingy. He lives in the cellar because it's the only room he can't. <laughs> oh dear, rent out. And she's not judgmental, really, about him. Oh, she prefers not to go close to him, but, you know, the way he lives, it's okay. Yeah, I I guess you could be pretty judgmental about him. But I think at that stage in her life, she's um, subject to so many different... (laughs) Experiences. um, ...affronts that she can't really afford to um, invest too much. Her friend Lolly moves out with her boyfriend. Now, this boyfriend doesn't like her. It's two hours and three bus rides away and she isn't welcome. So she moves out of the boarding house to Cousin Tatty's home. And I'm going to get Libby Angel to read from page 33. Okay. Tatty lives in a fibro in the outer northern suburbs, close enough to the men's prison that the PA announcements can be heard from out the front. The house smells of urine and bin juice and everything is covered in a film of grease and dust. There are boot and fist holes in the walls. Hmm, I say to Tati. Looks like asbestos. Better tell the landlord. I owe three months rent, Tati says. Asbestos is dangerous, I say. So are the hell's angels, she replies. I leave it at that. Absolutely fair enough. <laughs> you don't know who your landlord is. One of her last acts in Tidy Town is to steal an art line marker. How does that become a theme through the book? Well, she uses it to um, write on a variety of surfaces um, in public and private spaces as a means of uh, self-expression, direct route to self-expression, sort of... Um, bypassing the proper formal roots of artistic expression. She writes the hand of providence on a fence when she finds out her friend Bob will sublet to her. So where does she move to? So she takes a train to the city 
Yeah. So the city. The city, of course, is Melbourne. And I remind everybody back in 1990s, the st- you've given the streets initials yeah. as names. It's never actually stated anywhere in the book that it is Melbourne. Oh, I just assumed there were some <laughs> that, circumstances around that I recognised. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but of all the people she meets, there's two people that she only calls by their name, by their initials. There's C, the builder who teaches her to rock climb, yeah. and Q, his girlfriend. Yeah. So why don't they have names? Why don't they have names? Well, partly because, I mean, I guess it's a gesture to um, the fakery of giving names in fiction, but a willingness to disguise to mm. a point. Yeah, and I also like to just leave room in the reader's imagination to, because I mean, yeah, the the narrator herself doesn't have a name, and I don't know. I like to just leave a bit of well, space around it. And and what is a name anyway? Like, is that a kind of complete form of identity or? She moves into an orderly house, but she can't, as you say, inhabit the space. It's just too much order for her. In contrast, it's a room with Hannah, Zero and Jem. So what attracts her to them? I think that's basically the only place that will accept her. That's the main reason. But she is kind of very enamoured with them, I guess. They're because performance they, artists. Yeah, yeah, they seem to... Um, I think that's what she wants to be in a way. She watches them dress up and doing role plays on trams to embarrass people. She watches them film piercings, body piercings. And if you want to know what you, what happens when you have a Prince Albert, you'll have to read the book. And she joins in artistic, artistic protests and tries to get into that life of um, these artists. So I'm going to ask Libby Angel to read from page 111 from her book, Where I Slept. I hook up with a series of artists in the hope they will transmit a sense of vocation to me. I rifle through their hovels as they sleep, through their fridges, sketchbooks and record collections. I walk around their apartments naked or wrapped in a blanket, strumming guitars, smoking joint butts and drinking wine dregs out of jam jars until I become bored and cold, retrieve my clothes and leave. Who wants to face daylight with a stranger? So daylight with a stranger, but, you know, you get this sort of sense that she's looking for something with a friendship or or a vocation, as you said. There is one artist that she sleeps with who does lead to this vocation. That was the Winter Man. What made him so special? Well, he plays saxophone. And I think she kind of realises that it's more the saxophone itself that she's attracted to rather than the person, (laughs) the man. (laughs) And she thinks, you know, I don't know, I, I used to kind of feel like this, like attracted to someone because of, their devotion to something and then she realises that, oh, I don't need that, you know, I can play the saxophone myself, I can get a saxophone and play the saxophone myself, I don't need somebody, I can have that devotion. She writes, this winter man, the saxophone player, he humbles on my soul, which I thought was a lovely way to sort of express it all. But the saxophone leads her into another group of friends in the women's brass band and the saxophone 
leads to the ability for her to earn money busking. She actually pays for a saxophone, just like she paid for a pair of Italian soft maroon leather lace-up shoes. But she's very keen to write in graffiti, we three thieves. Where does she do most of her shoplifting from? Oh, from the op shop, yeah. <laughs> it's an atrocity. <laughs> shoplifting from Easy an op target. shop. Easy <laughs> target. <laughs> Not exclusively, also like um, supermarkets and stuff, yeah. Yeah, she said clothes are cheaper to buy than launder from the op shop. Yeah. She doesn't seem to buy drugs either, but she's eager to try anything. Can you give an example of one of the mind-altering experiences that she describes? Oh, um, well, they take mushrooms and go out painting uh, walls. Yeah, and acid and feeling the well, trees they take grow. acid and go on a bike ride and mm. then halfway she decides to turn around and go back. Yeah, um, two junkies, Tegan and a partner, move into the share house and all the spoons disappear. Yeah. <laughs> but she admires how hardworking they are because every day they have to go out, shoplift, pawn the goods and then score. Right. Oh, hard work. It is. <laughs> Finally, everyone is evicted from the share house and she finds herself with her bike, a bag of clothes, her Italian shoes and her saxophone, travelling on public transport all day to get out of the rain, sleeping in railway bathrooms and then setting up a home in a disused laundry. The laundry is an outbuilding in the backyard with quite a few holes in the roof, which I repair by climbing up and nailing down flattened tin cans. I make a bed out of an old door, resting one end on the concrete trough and the other on a wall joist. It slopes slightly downwards from head to foot, but it will have to do. Kirsten finds me a foam mattress, then shows me around the rest of the place. The terrace houses have a shared backyard, or rather, the fence between them is down. The kitchen smells like a compost heap, and the lidless bin overflows onto the floor. Ants crawl drunkenly over dirty dishes on the bench tops, and dazed fruit flies hover over boxes of rotting fruit and vegetables. Look, if you've ever lived in a share house, you know that this is like it. So, Libby Angel, is this a few remembrances of your own? Um, partly, yeah, but fictionalised. Fictionalised. I was thinking, actually, on the way here, I had this idea, like, fiction is a symptom of the truth. I think that might have, might have made it into the book, that quote. <laughs> anyway, from boarding houses to share houses to tough accommodation on the streets, Libby Angel has written about a young woman encountering like-minded artists and activists in the 1990s Melbourne. Where I Slept has short, colourful descriptions of these people and places. Thank you very much, Libby. Thanks, Jan. Thanks for having me. Yes, I can remember living in share houses. <laughs> you never were certain. But Lisa, you've got a... Yes, I have. Um, I have Bora Chung, who has a short story collection, and she has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. So here we go. Today I am joined by short story writer and novelist Bora Chung. In 2022, the English edition of her short story collection, Cursed Bunny, translated by Anton Herr, was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. Cursed Bunny is a genre-defying collection of short stories which blurs the lines between magical realism, horror and science fiction. Welcome, Bora. Hello, thank you for having me. Your work is like nothing I've ever read. 
What is your method for writing such original work? I start from something that is very mundane and ordinary, and I try to go the direction that is opposite from anything that could possibly happen in reality. Awesome way of um, of working. So you kind of like, you veer away from the predictable when you get started. It's more like um, choosing the direction that is not possible in any way in reality. So like uh, going the opposite of any natural law or any commonsensical choice that could happen. Wow, thank you for that insight. That's incredible. So I feel like often your work is has a dreamlike quality, especially the head and Curse Bunny. They have an archetypal or even a mythical sort of quality. I wonder where you, you go in yourself when you begin to write. Is it just an idea that pops into your head or do you find a place in order to find this kind of very mythical sort of story? I suppose I was deeply influenced by all the legends and mythology that I read as a child. But when I actually write something, I start from the end. So I have an ending, uh, a very clear picture of how it's going to end in mind. And then I go to the beginning and I kind of work backwards. So for me, it's a, it's a logical procession towards that clear ending that has to happen. What do you think is the, is the secret to a, a good short story? A good short story? I don't... I never learned how to write, so anything I know about writing, I learned from translating and from teaching literature. One of the literary theories I read about short stories, it was more like a manual than like um, difficult theory. Uh, this Russian theorist said uh, short story is like climbing up a hill. So the ending has to be the climax and whatever the reader sees in the end has to be completely different from the beginning because the scenery from on top of the hill should be different from what you see in the bottom. And that kind of gave me confidence. Um, but so many writers have so many different styles. And I think um, the, the genre of short story is defined by the length and not by the technique or by the content. And the technique and the content can vary from culture to culture, from language to language, and most importantly, from author to author. And um, even one author can have very different styles, um, apply different styles and technique uh, according to the, the topic or the theme or the mes message that they're trying to convey. So I, I can't really say like uh, an entire overarching theory about the, the entire genre of short fiction. That would be uh, oversimplification. Mm. Um, so as I explained in your introduction that you, you, you work in a genre-defying um, defying sort of way, is it that our notions of genre are just too limited or, or is it that your work kind of um, makes genre definition seem prosaic or simple? I don't think I'm the only one or I'm that special. Um, these days, uh, genre writers, especially horror, science fiction, thr thriller writers, all have to do something to 
go in and out of the the borders of their own genre because um, we as readers have known um, what science fiction looks like, what thriller thriller looks like, what detective novel looks like, what um, horror story looks like. And if you stick to just one genre, it's really, uh, it gets old very fast. And uh, genre fiction by definition um, is popular literature and we need to hook the reader um, the best we can. And uh, so genre genre writers are constantly looking for new topics, new techniques, new ways of um, saying the same thing over and over again. Um, We we have to do research and we have to cross those borders very often. Could I ask you now to read um, a little bit of the head. So, so the re- so the listener here has a, a a little bit of an idea about kind of where we're coming from with your work. The head. She was about to flush the toilet. Mother. She looked back. There was a head popping out of the toilet, calling for her. Mother. The woman looked at it for a moment. Then she flushed the toilet. The head disappeared in a rush of water. She left the bathroom. A few days later. She met the head again in the bathroom. Mother, the woman reached to flush the toilet again. The head sputtered. No, just a minute. The woman stayed her hand and looked down at the head in the toilet. It was probably more accurate to refer to it as a thing that vaguely looked like a head than an actual head. Thank you so much. Thank you. the head is so elliptical and real, your, your story, and, and, and impossible all at once. It, it captures the everyday surrealist nature of life in a way for me. Um, what did you set out to achieve in this story? Well, I like toilets. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to write a story about a toilet. I wanted to say that women are very often ignored just because they're women, especially women who are not young, not pretty, and not have anything to draw attention to themselves, like ordinary, regular women. And their voices are very often silenced because they are women, even though what they were experiencing is real and very serious, they're just—it's it, just so so easy to dismiss women's voices as she's hysterical, she's dramatic, she's emotional—those kind of things. And I'm—I was surprised to find out that these kind of expressions, she's she's hysterical, she's emotional, she's uh, so dramatic. The the equivalent of these expressions exist in almost every culture and every language that I know. I agree with you in relation to my own culture and, and I recognise that as, as problematic. And so in dealing in writing this type of story where you are bringing light to to this issue, this, you know, what is essentially feminist work and anti-capitalist work too, is capitalism a nightmare? 
When I was writing these stories, I didn't have a clear idea, but now I think, yes, capitalism <laughs> is bad and down with capitalism. Yeah, I completely agree with you. How did you expect readers to respond to your work? I didn't expect anybody to respond in any way because um, up until 2021, until um, before Anton translated my, my um, works, I was this no-name author living very happily um, in Korea teaching Russian language and literature. <laughs> and my day job and most of my life had nothing to do with um, being a writer. So I, I wrote for myself. I didn't expect anybody to read it. And, and now how are you going to face the page after this experience? Um, of, of having just been shortlisted for the Booker Prize? Um, I try to hide in my room and not face the reality. <laughs> and, and I can imagine writing after this is something that um, might be a little bit daunting for some people. Last year was hard. I found myself comparing every single sentence and every single word I wrote to Curse Bunny. Is it better than Curse Bunny? Is it as good as Curse Bunny? Is it somewhere... Um, on par with Curse Bunny. And then I remembered that I started writing in 1998 and until 2017, so almost two decades, um, nobody paid any attention to me and that was good enough for me. I was, I was writing for myself and that was good enough. So I went back to that. I read somewhere that you wrote The Head 17 years ago? Yeah, 1998. So it was, no, it was 25 years ago. So a 17-year-old wow. overnight success. So what advice would you give to emerging writers? Emerging writers, uh, first of all, write what you want to write, um, not something that you think would please the readers or the editors or the judges at any literary contest. Um, write something. There, there has to be a story that only you can tell the world because every life is different. So write something you want to write. And I have to emphasize this, take care of yourself. Um, take care of your joints because <laughs> writers tend to hurt their elbows, their shoulders, their back, their wrists. Um, recently, two of my friends hurt their wrists um, around at the same time. And this actually happens. Um, so drink plenty of water, take care of yourself. Um, take a walk and eat good food, you know, um, so that you can keep writing. So where were you when you received the news that you were shortlisted for the Booker Prize? I was in front of the Russian embassy in Seoul. I was um, at a protest against the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as it happened, I was the only person there among the protesters who could speak Russian. So I was like yelling at the Russian embassy in Russian to stop the war and get off, get their hands off Ukraine. It's inspiring. It was, it was cold and I was hungry and generally miserable. I like that you have to ground something so, so incredible in the, the, minutiae of life. I guess that's what your signature is in a way for us. How would you describe contemporary Korean literature today? That's a really broad question, but I think I do have an answer. I heard this answer from both um, Korean majors, so 
people who majored in like the classics of Korean literature and both from genre literature uh, writers as well. Um, Korean literature tends to look back towards Korean society very deeply. And Korean literature is very uh, critical towards uh, contemporary Korean life and the Korean society and everything that is the Korean institution. So it's it's very self-reflective and very critical. That's the common um, characteristic in all genres and almost all of Korean writers, I think. It sounds like a healthy way to think. Thank you. Well, no, I would like to thank you for coming in today. Uh, Thanks for being my guest here on Published or Not on 3CL. Thank you. Thank you. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.